The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from two passages. First of all, Psalm 87, and then Psalm 110, the verses 1 and 2. And we'll be reading these in connection with Lord's Day 13, which we'll touch down on later, in which our uh, confessions have been moving us through the Apostles' Creed, and it's reached the point where it speaks about Jesus Christ being called God's only begotten Son, and then our Lord. So we'll begin by reading from Psalm 87, which you'll be able to find on page 680 of your pew Bible. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre, with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people's This one was born there. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. And we'll read together from Psalm 110, which you can find on page 700. The verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So far, the word of God. We'll now look at Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and you'll be able to find that on page 528 of your book of praise. Why is he, that is Jesus Christ, called God's only begotten son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil, to make us his own possession so far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Sunday after New Year's Day, we dwelt on the concept of being children of the King. You may not have been here or it may not be fresh in your mind, so we'll quickly touch base on that again, the, the fact that those who truly confess Christ and believe in him, have their, that those who do that have their identity firmly established in him is the idea behind being a child of the king. And this is what we get from John 1 verse 12, right? To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But more than that, if your identity is in him, you must change. 
As a child of the king, you can't just keep on living like everyone else. You are living for something greater, and therefore your life must reflect that change. Ephesians 4, no longer live as those who do not believe live. And the outcome is, of course, that if there is simply a contented continuation in sin, then we need to call into question where we stand and to come before Christ, humbling ourselves, coming before him in repentance and seeking to live not just with our words but also our actions. If we really have turned over our lives to him as a living sacrifice of thankfulness, then we as children of God will change. But the the question that follows up after all of this, that follows up on the heels of this, is the second one that our catechism puts forward. Okay, so if we are children of God, our catechism points that out once again. It refreshes that in our minds. We, however, are children of God by adoption. If we are children of God, Sure, we are adopted while Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God, which is to say that he's, he's not adopted. But if we are adopted children of God, then why do we still need to call him Lord? If we are all fellow children of the King, brothers and sisters in Christ, then why do we need to call him Lord? Kim Scaper here today, who has professed her faith, Does she really need to call him Lord? Are we not all the same, children of one family, you boys and girls? If your brother said, now call me Lord, how would you feel about that? When your parents aren't home and your brother says, I'm in charge, that's hard enough to deal with, isn't it? We'll look at this idea under this theme. Jesus Christ is our Lord. And we'll see, first of all, how he has been declared our Lord. And second, that our Lord is also our brother. So before we get into all of that, what does it actually mean to be Lord? Some of you boys and girls might have just a a general idea of what it means to be Lord. But what's actually being said here? Well, in in a general sense, a lord is someone who has power or authority. If you were someone in government, for example, you could be called a lord. It could be a title of respect. You can see an example of this already in some small way, how it's used when a leper who is healed by Jesus in Matthew 8 comes to him and he calls him lord. Jesus, as a teacher and a rabbi, he already has a bit of a position of authority there. And he wanted to come and honor him as even higher than that. He wanted to call him Lord. Now, while it was unusual to show that kind of level of respect to a rabbi, this still didn't carry with it the same weight that we find coming after his resurrection. Now, you'll note this is the same word that's being used. There is Lord for this sense of respect. But there's also the word Lord, which carries with it an awe at someone's high station. 
And we can see how this changes after his resurrection. You can see this in how his disciple Thomas drops to his knees before him and, and whispers in awe, my Lord and my God. There's a shift there, you see. Not just respect, not just honor, but he elevates him beyond that, beyond everybody else in this world. Suddenly with his resurrection, all the world could see the truth of what Jesus would later declare in Matthew 28. That it's not just some respect and some authority that he's been given, but he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now Christ had surrendered his glory in order to come to earth in the first place. Philippians 2, verse 7 to 8, right? Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. So he came in the flesh to earth. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. By his work, Christ has humbled himself. However, having finished his work of redeeming his people, he's now been given divine authority over heaven and earth. Yes, authority over everything in heaven and on earth is divine authority, and it should be recognized as such. This is why the letter to the Philippians goes on to say in verses 9 to 11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in the first place you can see it's, it's not like your brother coming along and declaring himself to be in charge. The father is accepting the work of Jesus Christ as having been done. He's given it the seal of his approval. This is not self-appointed arrogance. This is real power that he's been given. And it's this very event of the Father's approval, the Father placing everything under the feet of the Son that's described in Psalm 110, which we read earlier this afternoon. Psalm 110 is an Old Testament shadow of this truth, pointing to the reality to come. And it's referring to Jesus Christ. This is one that comes back time and time and time again in the New Testament. And every time, it's pointing to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, which is Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus Christ has been given real authority. And he will continue to grow his kingdom until every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether out of adoration or simple recognition of his kingship, of his lordship. This is a process. It's an ongoing process, one which will one day be completed 
and all of the enemies of Christ will be made his footstool. This has real-life consequences for how we live in this world, recognizing this truth. This has real-life consequences. If you were here this morning, you may have heard me refer to Pastor Wang Yi, who had been in prison in China just recently for nine years because of his faith. He's been sentenced to nine years because he preaches the truth of the gospel. But it's this truth of Jesus Christ as Lord, of the authority of Jesus Christ that gives him boldness. And it gives him compassion. The knowledge that a final day is coming, it's this truth that gives him mercy towards his accusers. Because as he said in a sermon, one of his last before he was arrested, he said he is calling them to repentance. He's calling the, the leader of the Chinese world, Xi Jinping, to repentance and he says, we say this because we truly believe that this is for the good of all authorities in power and for every government worker. We do not want them to see them and their descendants be cursed by God. We long to see them turn from their wicked ways because a judgment is coming. Jesus Christ is coming as Lord and as judge and every knee will bow. For Jesus will sit at the right hand of God, ruling until his kingdom covers all. This is what has been promised in Psalm 110. Our God has declared this to be so. Yes, he is our brother. Yes, he is our brother, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so we as well will bend the knee before our brother and our king. But we need not fear. Yes, Jesus is Lord. And he will come again as our eternal judge. But we need not fear. We need not fear because of the promise that comes to the foreground in the next psalm we looked at today, Psalm 87. And it would be helpful if you were to open up to that as well as we work our way through that. Psalm 87 tells us what happens to those whose Lord is Jesus Christ. And this is a promise that didn't have its fulfillment in the Old Testament age. This is a promise that only has its fulfillment in the New Testament age. It's only possible in the New Testament age through Christ. But how do we know this? Well, we know this because of the people who are mentioned in this psalm. The found his foundation is in the holy mountains the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So the first people that we see mentioned here are the people of God. What's going on here? Well, this psalm is pointing out that God has established himself 
in a special way in one place here in the Old Testament. Jerusalem, otherwise described as Zion in the Old Testament. That is that place. This is where God chose to put the place where all the people of the nation could gather together for worship. It was an abiding symbol of his presence and of his promise to be their God and to be with them. And we can see this hammered home again through the name that he gives his people here, the Lord, that name of promise, Yahweh, that special name that God gives to his people. To the nation of Israel, God's people, he was the God who lived in relationship to them, who lived in promise with them. This name was like the name husband given to a wife on the wedding day. And the fact that he had his temple in the middle of all of them was something, a physical symbol that they could all look to time and time again, like that ring on a wedding day. They could look to God's dwelling place and be reminded of God's eternal and abiding promise and presence. So far, so good. But how does this then translate to the New Testament age? These are all Old Testament promises, right? These are things we find unfolding one after another in the Old Testament. How does this translate to the New Testament? Well, that comes in the lines that immediately follow. Israel, God's people, will flourish under his rule, his lordship, but it's not just them. He goes on. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This one was born there. And again in verse 6, the Lord will record when he registers the peoples, when he registers the nations of the earth. This one was born there. This was something you did not see in the Old Testament take special notice here. Three of those nations from where God's people will be drawn that are mentioned here, Rahab, another name for Egypt, Babylon, and Philistia, these were nations that were historically enemies of the people of God. People from these nations would be called the people of God. Not only will they be called the people of God, but the Lord will place their citizenship in Zion. He'll place them as having come from the place that is most precious to him, that most deeply and clearly and publicly represents the bond that he has with his people. People from these nations, although they are not native to Zion, are given a rebirth as the people of God. They are taken from their old lives and they are given something new, something that only one with authority and power can give. They will be reborn as the people of God. He will write them as having been born in the heart of his nation where the Lord himself has his seat of power. And this is only possible in the New Testament era where the Holy Spirit is sent from above, to join all those who believe to Jesus Christ, not just from one nation, but from all the nations, whoever believes in him. It's only possible because Jesus Christ has finished his work 
has ransomed for himself a people, a people over whom he is Lord. Ransom them, body and soul, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and freed them from all the power of the devil to make them his own possession. And that's what we confess today when we call him our Lord, when we declare this in the Apostles' Creed, that we belong to him. We belong to him because he has brought us out of slavery. He has ransomed us from all our sins and sacrificed himself to make us his own possession. A people that's drawn from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. A people that's drawn from the most unlikely of places, even the enemies of Christ. Even from those who have been ignorant of him in the past. The same is true today. Even from among those who have been in opposition to the people of God. If there was a time where you were in opposition to the people of God or ignorant of him in the past, even from among these people, Jesus Christ will claim them for himself and lay on them the covenant name. He'll lay on them the name Lord, Yahweh, the name of promise, the name that says you belong. And it's because of that name, because of the name Yahweh, and also because of the name Lord, as we find it in the New Testament, in which he lays claim to us, that you need not fear. You don't need to question if he's working in your best interests. Because that's the human inclination, right? We saw that right when we first began, that human suspicion of, say, I, I need to recognize him as, as Lord? Because we're reminded that the whole point is the closeness of a brother as a king. The whole point is that he, as Lord, made it possible for us to become his brothers. As Lord, he draws us near, having paid for our adoption to make us his brothers. And then, as Lord, he reminds us that we have family in high places. And this is important. When we call Jesus Lord, we're not separating the fact that he is our brother. We're not putting distance between us and our brother. But through this, God is reminding us that our Lord is brought close to us. Our catechism today reminds us of the fact that we are children of God by adoption. And then it turns around and reminds us of his lordship in light of that. And he loves and protects us whom he's been given out of the nations. He loves and protects us whom he died for with the fierce love of family. So yes, he is Lord. Yes, he is Lord. And in him, we see an eternal judgment. An eternal future judgment. 
but we also see our brother who stepped in and who took that judgment on himself and who is fiercely protective of us. Always remember this, beloved. He is our Lord. Kim, you've made your profession of faith. And for all of the rest of us, he is our Lord. Honor him as Lord. Obey him as Lord. Glorify him in all we say and do. But let's also take comfort in him as brother. Our brother to whom we belong by adoption and who paid for that adoption with his own blood. Who loves us with a love of family and who will never let go of those to whom he has laid claim. Amen.